All right, kids, if I could have your attention for a second, let me make sure I know where you are first. We're reading this book called Ruth as we get ready for Christmas. And this book has characters in it, just like a movie does. But we have to know who is who. So this morning, I want you to see if you can focus on two people, the lady named Ruth and a lady named Naomi. And your job this morning is to come away from today to be able to tell somebody, your parents or whoever, one thing about each of those people. Make sure you know who's who, who's Ruth and who's Naomi, and see if we can come away with something from this morning. A quick story for all of you. Once there was a man who found himself in dire straits. He was helplessly flat on his back, and a masked man was advancing upon him with a sharp weapon. He looked around frantically as his chest heaved. This armed assailant wasn't alone. He had friends. One of those friends was smothering the helpless man until he began to lose consciousness. The last thing he saw was the sharp weapon drawing closer and closer to him. Then nothing. The helpless man finally awoke in a hospital bed. But the truth was he had been in the hospital the whole time. Just a few hours earlier, he found himself in the emergency room with a ruptured appendix. And the doctor, along with the staff, had to work quickly to remove the problem and failed appendix before things got bad. There was no threat with a knife, just a doctor with a precision scalpel. Nor was there a malicious smotherer, just the anesthesiologist. There were two people intent to help the helpless man. But in those confused and disoriented moments, the helpless man was certain that they meant to harm him. He perceived the incoming pain as unnecessary and malevolent, but he couldn't have been more wrong. Last week, we looked at how the story of Ruth has awful beginnings. The time of the judges was marked by violence and godlessness, and on top of that, there was a famine. That's when we meet Elimelech's family. And this first chapter zooms in on the wife of Elimelech and the mother figure, Naomi, who has lost everything. It's Naomi who gives us a window into how we should understand our suffering as Christians, with the biggest question being, from whom does our suffering come? From malicious hands who only intend to harm or hands that intend to save? If we're honest, when things go sideways in our lives, our knee-jerk reaction is to think this shouldn't be happening. That if we just removed the difficulty, then things would be all around better for us, either now or long term. But the story of Ruth proves that God folds pain into his plan and that Naomi's situation or our situation is not something that he's somehow fumbled. We often find ourselves helplessly being thrown into unwanted trials and unexpected loss and inexplicable pain. But is it purposeless? Is it just pain for pain's sake? Is God like a raging alcoholic who carelessly slings us around just because we're 
we're close to him? Does he treat Christians with an extra measure of heavy-handedness? I often wonder that too. Three things become clear to us that show us what Ruth 1 is all about, especially regarding suffering. Number one, the tragedy is his. Two, the solution is his. Three, the choice is ours. First, the tragedy is his. I won't spend too much time on these first few verses because we were there last week, but Naomi has endured so much. Her husband has died. Her only two sons have died. She's in a foreign land, and now she is left with two daughters-in-law from a questionable nation. She's lost it all. Some of you are enduring suffering right this moment, and you may be predicting what will be said this morning. Sigh, another sermon telling me to look past my suffering and trust God more. That's not true, and I want to prove it to you. There is room for grief and groaning. Some, some in this room are widowed, just like Naomi, or childless, just like Naomi, or are grieving things that will come, that, or things that had never come, or you're enduring physical pain, or depression, or simply time lost and hope deferred. I think that that's our first order of business and our first priority this morning, to look at Naomi's life and whatever you've walked through and appropriately grieve. I have not yet found in this whole Bible where God tells us to look away from ours and others' suffering. We're not meant to look away, to pretend like it's not as soul-sapping as it really is. No, in this Bible, I see that Jesus wept with Mary, who lost her brother, I'd like to think that he'd weep with Naomi. And I'm certain that he weeps with you. There's a reality implanted into each one of us that asks, is this the kind of life that we're made for? Suffering, loss. And to that we can, through tears, mind you, through tears say, no. As his people, God made us to live with him in the new heavens and new earth without suffering. But for now, we grieve. We groan for something better. We pray for Jesus to return ASAP. Matthew 5, 4 says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. We'll be comforted one day, even if we're mourning now. These things have happened to, that have happened to Naomi are not unimportant to God. And the rest of the story will show us that. But for now, you'll notice that Naomi, she's on the move. Verse 5 says, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. Now finally... In Ruth 1, there's a small bit of hope. It seems like the Lord has ended the famine, so Naomi says, I'm, I'm going to go home. And she and her much smaller family go on their way. On the way, though, Naomi decides that these two women whose husbands have also died would be better off if they went 
back to their own home. She blesses them. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt kindly with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. So she wishes them well by asking them, by asking God to bless them with new husbands, which would bring provision and protection for them. This is an intense moment, as you'll see, because the bond between these women seems very deep. They weep over the possibility of being separated from Naomi, who perhaps has become a true mother to them. First, both of them resolve to stick with Naomi, to which Naomi responds, revealing a major dilemma. She says, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go on your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even, I should, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? The biggest reason Naomi is attempting to send them off is because there's no hope for being married, protected, and provided for in this family. All the men are dead, and Naomi is too old to give birth to a third brother, a brother who in those days could take up the responsibility to marry and care for his older brother's widow. That may seem odd, but God's law actually has this built-in security for widows so that they aren't left to fend for themselves. All is lost for me, says Naomi, but if you stay, all will be lost for you too, girls. But Orpah and Ruth push back and refuse to go. The last thing Naomi says to them is serious. No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord, the hand of Yahweh, has gone out against me. Naomi knows that God is involved. She says that he is the one who has done all this taking from her, and the result is her entire life has this bitter flavor. She feels opposed, and she feels like God is against her. She feels like God's enemy. Naomi is right that God is responsible here. God, in his infinite wisdom, planned and orchestrated Elimelech's, Malon's, and Killian's death, along with the famine too. We'd be wrong to attribute difficult circumstances as planned by anyone else. But doesn't that feel just, just a little bit wrong to say that your suffering is from God? To say that the tragedy belongs to him. That it's fully accounted for, meticulously planned, intentionally carried out. Depending on who you believe God is, that realization can be your greatest fear or your greatest hope when you suffer. Let me say that one more time. Depending on who you believe God is, that realization can be your greatest fear, or your greatest hope in suffering. More on this in a moment, but I want it to rest on us this morning to consider what that means, to consider that the hardships you face are really and truly 
from the hand of God himself. Is he malicious towards you? What kind of God you believe him to be in those moments matters. There was a time when our daughter Eleanor was in the, in the womb when Jackie and I got pretty nervous. Some of you might remember this. She was, she was growing at a normal rate. She grew and grew and grew, and then the doctors told us that she had sort of plateaued. Of course, when a situation goes from normal to abnormal, it gets, it gets our attention. And I didn't know in that moment what to think. I was scared. I was perplexed. So my frustration came out as I wrote a little bit. I was expressing how impossible it was to resist moments where God seems to just ruin things. How wrong it felt to be harmed by a God who says he loves me. It was his hand that did this and it felt like an angry, malicious hand. Some of you know exactly what that's like and more. To look at your situation and say, God, I know you did this and it feels like betrayal. That's what it feels like. Why, my child, don't you want their safety? Why are these pains so intense? Don't you want me to be able to get out of bed so I can live? Why is money low or business horrible right now? Aren't you concerned with me being provided for? Why have so many people in my family died? Are you trying to steal away any shred of joy I had? Why are you squashing me like a bug? Why are you keeping my mind a wreck? Why am I always on the receiving end of so-and-so's hate? Don't you want peace? We could go on about all the ways that God seems to be making the wrong choice by letting us walk through particular suffering. But we come back to the same hard question. Is he against you? Is he against you? That leads us to point number two. The solution is his. Not only is the tragedy his, but the solution is his. Yes, he has dealt with Naomi in such a way that she calls it bitter. Meanwhile, Orpah kisses Naomi and essentially bids her farewell, finally agreeing to leave. She's off to see what she can make of the situation and whether or not she can marry again in her home country where the Lord has been replaced with other gods. So she goes back to Moab. But Ruth is left clinging to Naomi. She won't let Naomi go. After Naomi tells Ruth to follow Orpah, Ruth sharply resists her. Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you will go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there, there will I be buried. May the Lord, may Yahweh do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. Naomi is left just blinking at Ruth and decides not to push back this time. What's Ruth's deal? Why is she so passionate about staying with Naomi? 
She literally tells Naomi, I am going to be by your side until one of us dies. And if you happen to die first, that's where I'm going to be buried too. And may God strike me dead if anything but death parts us. What loyalty is in Ruth? Ruth, in so many words, is saying, it is better to be with you. I would rather be attached to you, a helpless widow, and attached to your people and your God than to be godless with a brighter future in Moab. It's a remarkable statement, and you can't help but be amazed at Ruth. She is serious, and Naomi can't stop her. Ruth has shown this deep level of loyalty to Naomi. And this is, this is a time where often the, the story starts to get glued to Ruth, and we leave a little bit of what's, what the Lord is describing to us in the background. Ruth is showing this loyalty, and it's loyalty that will ultimately be to Naomi's benefit. And that's, that's just it, though. Did you notice that Naomi's idea of how things should go was to send off these two ladies. Her idea of a best-case scenario was, I'll go back to Bethlehem and Judah, you guys return back home. That's, that's the best case. But God is far wiser, and he has better ideas. The solution to Naomi's plight is in God's hands, and we know from the rest of the story that he is the one who is tying Ruth to Naomi so that Ruth can be the one whom God uses to bless Naomi with food and grandchildren. Not only that, but just in, in talking to Jackie about this, she pointed out to me that Naomi has no idea that she is trying to say goodbye to the very woman whom God would use to bring Jesus into the world, Naomi's true deliverer. Naomi, if... if if Naomi's plans succeeded, could you imagine? But that's how it is for us in our finite understanding. This is a chance for all of us to collectively admit this. In all the moments we've insisted that our way is the better way, in all the difficulties we've faced thus far, we are often resisting God's plan to work out his good and perfect and better plans. Even if your solution might be to turn away from God because you feel like your life would be more pleasant if you told him to buzz off. Friends, resist that urge and that temptation because like Naomi, you will turn your back on the very person who has the real and ultimate solution to your suffering. The solution is his. Lord, your way is better even if you haven't explained to me how it's better. Here before Naomi is the solution to her sorrows in the form of a daughter-in-law named Ruth. And here she was trying to send Ruth away. You may be quite sure that you know how your suffering should pan out. There's a clear path to safety or greener pastures and you're going to take it. Friends, we don't know it all for a reason. And it's so we can trust the God who took a Moabite widow to rescue Naomi's fortune and quite literally save the world. That's a God 
whose solutions are better than my feeble attempts to try and fix things. If, in, if you're in the midst of it right now, please stop trying to force your outcome. I invite you this morning to not push away the scalpel as if God, the Lord of the universe, doesn't know exactly what he's doing. I think we, like Naomi, are blinded by the same sort of habitual unbelief that shows up when the temperature of our life rises and all we see is loss and emptiness. This shouldn't be happening, we say. What this story draws us into is entrusting ourselves to God who will always and forever accomplish his perfect will. There's not really any hope in saying, I'll be okay, everything happens for a reason, right? That's what people tell themselves to try to take the edge off of things, pretending that their life will magically, at some point down the road, wind up more okay than it is. Something more reassuring is this. I trust that everything I will face today and the rest of my life is done intentionally by my God for his good and perfect designs. The things in your life that are most challenging are not chance happenings fulfilling some quote-unquote reasons. They are intentional actions from a personal God who is fully in control. But he can be in control still and be against you, right? So, I ask you again, is he against you? That leads us to our third point, the choice is ours. Together, Ruth and Naomi make a long journey back to Bethlehem. It says this, And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred up because of them. And the women said to Naomi, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So there's this bustle in Bethlehem and the whole town who hasn't seen Naomi in 10 years hardly recognizes her. Maybe she's worn not just from age, but grief. And she responds to the greetings with this, I'm not Naomi. That's not who I am now. Because, as you might see in a footnote in your Bible, Naomi, the name Naomi means pleasant. Naomi is essentially saying, my own name mocks me. Naomi, my life is anything but pleasant. Call me Mara. Because the Almighty God has spoken out against me and brought nothing but calamity, making my life bitter. In a very real way, Naomi has become defined by that pain such that she wanted her name to reflect her reality. Now, if you'll notice, all we have up to this point in Ruth is Naomi's evaluation of God in chapter 1. Is it accurate? Has he done this to Naomi? Yes. Has he brought calamity? Yes. 
Has he brought Naomi back empty? It feels that way for Naomi. But is she empty? In different ways, Naomi says twice in this chapter that God is against her. And who can blame her? Because the situation seems that way. But is it that way? The last verse actually helps us understand. Verse 22. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem, when? At the beginning of the barley harvest. This summary verse says a lot. Naomi's life is bitter and she is empty. And like we learned last week from Judges, Bethlehem seems like a very bad place thus far. Until now, at the end of chapter 1. The timing is just right. And Bethlehem, which as many of you know, means the house of bread, is about to harvest and have food again. Oh, friends, this is no, no accident. The timing is just right. And guess who has brought them back to Bethlehem right at the beginning of barley harvest? God has. The one who Naomi thinks has been against her this whole time, he is supplying her hometown with food. And he has supplied Naomi with a woman named Ruth, who she was about to send off just a little bit earlier, both of which he will use to fill Naomi's emptiness. Do you see the gracious hand of God? I told you I'd written in a journal about being scared for baby Eleanor and feeling wronged. A day or so later, the next page in that journal read differently. Suddenly, I realized that the hand that had dealt a wound knew exactly what he was doing. The top of that page just says hidden hands. Because God does not always tell us the why and the how. While God's hands do inflict as they inflicted Naomi, the question remains, what kind of God does that? And is he against me? You might know what I'm about to say, but I'm going to let someone else say it in a much, much better way. I'll read a few quotes from the book, Newton on the Christian Life by Tony Ranke that can maybe alter how we look at the suffering we experience. Many of you know John Newton. He's the author of Amazing Grace, as well as a pastor who we have lots of his letters and things like that that are instructive for us. And he describes our soul as sick with sin, needing healing, needing saved. That's what leads him to say this, trials are medicines measured out with care and prescribed by our wise and gracious physician. And again, he says, let us trust our physician, and he will surely do us good. Do you see how that starts to shift us from, what are you doing, to, oh, he is carefully measuring out our suffering. He won't let it go an inch further than he intends, and he is working it for my good. Even in the moments when you don't believe that he's working it for good, he is still working it out for your good. Here, Ranke shares a few more of Newton's descriptions of suffering, but the point is the same. Every moment of our suffering is a love token 
proof of God's favor, proof of his enduring love, proof of his fatherhood over us, proof of his divine claim on us, proof of his friendship to us, and proof of our preciousness to him. How How is that true? And he kind of explains. The same Christ who was pierced for sinners is the Christ who governs and rules over every trial, measuring every sting, with a love which can give no unnecessary pain to those for whom he died on the cross. Friends, Jesus will not unnecessarily pain you. He will not carelessly afflict you. He died to claim you and to save you. All that he does in the form of bringing suffering into your life is what he, the all-knowing king, has deemed necessary to bring about his good purposes, and you can rest on that. Is he against you? In those moments of suffering, is God's almighty hand against you, like Naomi is saying? Well, there's a familiar verse that I've been alluding to all morning, but it's high time that we read it. And can you read this with me? Because I want us to hear ourselves say this together. Romans 8, 28. Let's read it together. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Paul is saying, and we know, and we know this, that for those who love God, all things work together for what? Good for those who are called according to his purpose. Friends, if you belong to Jesus by trusting in him. He is working all things, and all things means all things together for good. For good and not evil, not harm for harm's sake. He is working it for good. Don't wait for the outcome to start believing that. It can bring you moments of relief in the hardest times if this works its way all the way down into our bones. Here's what that looks like from Psalm 56, written by David, which is a psalm about David's suffering from being constantly attacked. It's his description of the God who has caused his suffering. Does does this sound like a malicious hand? You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book kept like a record? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. David, in the recesses of his soul, is convinced that God is on his side. His God has known every shed tear. He has noticed every wrong done against David. And he will make all things right. Church, if David can be certain, how much more can we who know the rest of the story about God coming down to us, how much more certain can we be? Jesus is the ultimate proclamation to us as Christians that God is for me. When we were lost in darkness, Jesus came for us. When we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Ask me how I know that God's ways are better than mine and yours and yours and yours and that we should trust his better ways. 
But when we couldn't see him, he appeared to us as light in darkness. When we weren't looking for him, when we hated him as deeply as a person can hate, he looked on the world with compassion and brought his own son as a child of all things to be our rescuer. None of us in this room would have thought up a better solution. Amen? Here's another proof that God is for us even in bitterness. What about the bitter plan for Jesus? Do you think Jesus may have been tempted to think he had better plans for what was about to go down when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane? Just before he was flogged and beaten and killed, Scripture says a few things about how he responds. First, he asks for there to be another option, which almost gives us the freedom to, to go ahead and ask, Lord, is there, another, is there another way? Is there another option? We don't have to pretend like this isn't difficult. But when he received no answer, he knew that God's plan was different and ultimately somehow better. Second, he prays, not my will, but yours be done. That's the proclamation of someone who is certain that his way isn't necessarily the best way. Even Jesus himself walked through difficulty relying on his Father's wisdom, and he didn't recoil. He allowed himself to be further pressed into the safe hands of his loving Father. We want to live in a place of, I don't know why he's doing this, and it is so painful. God, have mercy on me, but I know your hands are the safest place I could possibly be. Your bitter plan for Naomi led to her being filled rather than staying empty, even when she didn't trust you. And your bitter plan for Jesus to die led to our salvation. Who am I to say that your bitter plan for me will not result in good? Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. This is the God of Sovereign Grace Church Dayton. The God who mysteriously incorporates bitter pain into his plan and into our lives. And yet who is unrelentingly committed to our good and his glory. Friends, that's where we want to live. What would you rather, live on a wish and a prayer or live being certain that the pain God brings into your life is measured, it's understood, it's intentional, and it's ultimately temporary, dispensed by the very same one who loves you more than you could possibly fathom? Here's Newton again. Sooner shall the most tender mother sit insensible and inattentive to the cries and wants of her infant than the Lord Jesus be an unconcerned spectator of his suffering children. Wow. Newton is borrowing that language from Isaiah 49, and I'll read it to you. 
Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Can, tell me if it's possible, can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget Yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palm of my hands. God is saying to us, you're right here in my hands. You could not be closer to me. It's like you're etched into my palms and I cannot forget you. Church, he sees your suffering because he has administered it carefully like medicine for us, bitter as it is, and it is bitter. But trust that his hands aren't coming at you to harm you, but to make his wisdom shine in you by using that suffering for our good and his fame in this world. And friends, let's repent today for assuming that God has no clue what he's doing and believe that he is actually and surprisingly on your side. At this point, I failed to tell you the main purpose of Ruth 1, but now I hope it's a bit clearer after walking through it. It's this, the God who may cause your life to be bitter or painful couldn't be more concerned with mercifully doing you good. The God who may cause your life to be bitter or painful, it's from his hand. He also couldn't be more concerned with mercifully doing you good. As we're about to enjoy the Lord's Supper together, there's a reality that all I've said this morning applies to those who have placed their faith in Jesus and are following Him. For those who have not trusted in Christ, God is against you, friend. Scripture says that you are His enemy. So we'd ask you not to take part in the Lord's Supper, but rather consider how it is that Jesus gave himself, his own flesh and his blood to be punished for your sins if you believe in him. That is the way in which we come into a place where God is for us, moving from a place where God has been against us, his trusting in his son. For those who have trusted in Christ, you can come even though you're not perfect. And you can rejoice in the fact that God is for you. This is proof again. God is for you rather than against you because you are accepted in his son Jesus.